0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, this last fall, I took our family to Kuiper's Farm, uh, where we were going to do some seasonal festivities. And when we got there, my daughters, who are five and eight years old, they saw Uh, the corn maze and they're like, dad, dad, can we go in the maze? Let's do the maze. And I'll, I'll just be really honest. My first instinct was to just send them in there on their own. I figured it'd take them a while. And Michelle and I would get a few hours of peace and quiet. It's like free babysitting. Fantastic. But my eight-year-old wanted me to come along. So uh, we go up to the entrance of the maze. And I think there were three paths. There's an easy, a medium, and a hard. And she'd never been in a maze before. So instinctively, I just head towards the easy path, you know. And she tugs on my arm, though. And she's like, no, Dad, and points at the hard sign. And, and I say, honey, I, you know, if, if we go in there, I'm not sure you're going to be able to find your way out. And if I wanted to persuade her, that was the last thing I should have said to her. She gives me that, don't tell me what I can't do, look. And she's just that kid, so she's doubly determined to go on the hard route. And I think she kind of saw through my bluff, because what I was really saying wasn't, I don't think you'll be able to find your way out. It was, I'm sure I won't be able to find my way out. I have zero sense of direction. Like if I go to the grocery store, like the one we always go to, if I'm by myself, I have to use my phone to find my way there. And if my phone dies while I'm there, I just spend the night. Like, I, it's, it, it's a sign from God. He wants me to sleep in aisle seven. So that's where I am. So I know if I go in a maze, I am going to end up being that creepy guy who's wandering around, scaring everybody. Like, how do you find the way out? I should have just taken the free babysitting. I should have sent the kids in here by themselves. Like, so we go in the maze, and we, we find our way out. Obviously, I'm here today. Uh, but you know that feeling of being stuck in a maze. Have you ever been there where you're like, how do I get out of here? Now, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that there's a maze that doesn't... You don't just get lost in for an hour or even a day. But there is a maze where people go in and they get lost for a lifetime. And they cannot find their way out. What does it feel like to be stuck in a maze like that? When the Bible describes the human condition, it often uses the image of being lost. Describes us as wandering around searching but unable to find a a path that actually leads to freedom and to life and to the place where we belong. One way to think about the story of Jesus is this. It is the story of God making a way for his children to come back home. We're currently in a series called The Great I Am. It is a series that is all about Jesus. We're looking in the book of John at what Jesus actually said about himself. Now, around here, we talk about Jesus all the time. Uh, the name of our church is Christ Community Church. Uh, we're obsessed with the guy. And the reason we always talk about Jesus is because we know that what is so beautiful about the Christian faith is not our worship services, it's not our spiritual practices, it's not the warm relationships we have here, it's not the way we serve in the community or our morality or ethics. As good as all of those things are, the thing that makes the Christian faith compelling is the person of Jesus Christ. He, he is absolutely amazing. Now, I, I don't know where you're coming from today. I don't know uh, if you have lost faith, if you have strong faith, if you're just searching and trying to find faith. I don't know if this is your first time ever in a church or you've been coming for your entire life. I don't know if you are curious or skeptical, if you're devout or just kind of tired of religion. But I can tell you this, for thousands of years, people from all different cultures, different backgrounds, men and women, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, those who are successful and those who are suffering have all been drawn to the Christian faith for one reason, Jesus, he is amazing. And so if you're like me over the course of this series where we have been talking about what Jesus says about himself, I found this so refreshing, so encouraging, so nourishing to hear Jesus say things like, I am the bread of life the one who has come to satisfy those those deep hungers and needs that nothing in the world seems to fill. I am the light of the world. I've come to shine in the dark places in your life so that you can see. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the entrance into a life that is abundant and secure. I'm the good shepherd, the one who guides and guards you, the one who lays down his life for the ones he loves. It is amazing to see Jesus say those things and see who he is. Now, we're going to talk about another one of those I am statements where where Jesus describes himself. Only this time, I think it's just as much good news and, and comfort and encouragement. But at first glance, for most of us, it doesn't feel that way. It's the one that we're most likely to bristle at and say, oh, I don't know about that. So we're gonna try to dive into that and see where this is actually good news. But we're gonna begin simply by reading the I Am Statement. It is found in John chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, it's helpful to know the Bible is divided into two big sections. There's the Old Testament, which is everything that happens before Jesus, and the New Testament, which is everything that happens after Jesus arrives. Now, John's in the New Testament. It's one of the biographies of Jesus, about 80% of the way through the Bible if you're trying to find it. Uh, We're going to be looking at this entire conversation uh, in just a moment. But I just want to zero in first on the I am statement in verse 6. So let's actually read this together. I'm going to put it on the screen. Let's read it all together uh, at all four of our campuses. This is what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when I read that verse, like I said, it might be one that you bristle at. The, the first half of the verse, it, it sounds like good news at first, but when we get to the second half, where it says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he, he kind of wince a little bit. And, and I want to address this part first, because my hope is that as we go along, you're going to actually see that that second half of the verse is actually good news. And the reason I'm pretty sure it's good news is because of something just in the context, just a few verses earlier in this conversation, Jesus says something that clues us in, that he's trying to give us good news. In verse one of chapter 14, he starts off this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So in this conversation, Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples. He's trying to tell them something that will will bring peace to their troubled hearts. And this is where he goes. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you cringe at that phrase, here's what I'd ask be willing to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt for just the next half an hour or so and try to get into his own head where, where he, the reason he would say, this is a comfort for you. This is good news for you. I want you to know this because it'll bring peace to your heart. Why would he say that? And why would the disciples see it as that? But as we dive into that, the first thing we need to do is ask the question, why is it that it makes us uncomfortable that Jesus is the only way? This is the first point I wanna get. Why it makes us uncomfortable that Jesus is the only way? Because there are good reasons to feel uncomfortable at that statement that Jesus is the only way. Uh, For one thing, it feels arrogant, doesn't it? Uh, There are 8 billion people on the planet, and if you say Jesus is the only way, you are implying that the majority of that 8 billion people, they've got it wrong, but you've got it right. that's, That's a really bold thing to say. It takes some gumption to do that and it also sort of sounds like you know what all these people who are all confused i'm actually enlightened so here i am with my superior understanding to inform all of them about what's really true now it doesn't matter how kindly or nicely you say that it's kind of hard not to feel judged when someone approaches you that way they feel like you're saying whoa hey you're here to correct me on this who who are you sort of sounds like the art teacher who says there's only one way to paint a flower And if you use a different technique, or heaven forbid, you you want to draw a sunset or a portrait or something different, you are wrong. There is only one way. That's how it comes across. It also feels unfair. I mean, what happens to all those people who just haven't heard about Jesus? I mean, take just one example. We're here in the Fox Valley right now, if you're at the St. Charles or the Aurora campus here. Where did the name Fox Valley come from? came from the Native American tribe, the Fox tribe that lived in this area long before people who knew about Jesus ever showed up here. So what do you do in a place where for thousands of years there are people who never heard the name of Jesus? Do you have to say none of them knew God? It feels unfair. It feels like if Jesus is the only way to God, then a lot of people are at a serious disadvantage. It also feels just awkward. I mean, if if you think that Jesus is the only way, if you even have just a shred of compassion, you're going to want to tell people about Jesus because that's really, really important for them to find the way. But when you think about that conversation, it's like, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to go well. Like, I don't like being in conversations where I tell someone they're wrong. I don't, I don't want to you know, make someone feel judged by something I'm saying. I don't want to get in a fight with someone. This is, this is going to be an awkward conversation. And so I, I get it. I don't blame people when they feel uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus is the only way. It actually is coming from some good instincts. It is better to be humble than arrogant. It's right to want God to be fair with people. It's a good desire to want to enjoy your relationships and not make them awkward. And so I sympathize with those concerns. The problem is with the solutions that most people propose to address those concerns. In order to minimize the discomfort of saying Jesus is the only way, a lot of people will go one of two directions. Some people will say, everyone is right. Let's, let's just agree, everybody's right. They all got the right answers. Even when religions sound like they don't see eye to eye when they're saying different things, in reality, they're all kind of touching on the same things. They're just talking about it in different ways. The, the classic analogy for this is the, the story of the blind men and the elephant. A, a group of blind men, they stumble on this elephant and they're all touching a different part of the animal. And the guy who is leaning on the, the, the side of the elephant, he's like, look, we found a big solid wall here. And the guy who finds the trunk, he, he's like, oh, no, 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 we didn't find a wall, we found a, we found a hose. And the guy who's holding the, the tail, he's like, no, no, it's a very stinky rope, that's what we found. But if they could see, they would realize they're all actually talking about the same thing, even though they're describing it in different ways. Another way to think of it is this, if you that maze analogy. If you are stuck in a maze and someone comes to you and says, hey, Every path leads out of the maze. Just keep going on the one you're on because it all leads to the exit. Everybody is right. Other people will go the opposite direction. They'll they'll say, it's not everybody is right, it's everybody is wrong. (laughs) Maybe the reason we can't agree on a path to God is because there is no path to God. There isn't even a God out there to find. If you were in the maze, actually the maze is all there is, all there ever was. And the point is not to try to find your way out of the maze, The point is to try to make the best out of living in the maze. Make this the best experience possible while we're here. Maybe everybody is wrong. Now, when you think about it, those two solutions, they don't actually solve the problem. In some ways, they actually make the problems worse. I mean, think about the idea that everybody is right. It sounds very humble. It sounds like a very tolerant thing to say. But I actually think, even unintentionally, it makes you come across as more arrogant so when, when I was in high school, my group of friends were people from all sorts of different religious groups. They were devout Muslims, devout Hindus, devout Jews. And there weren't a lot of people of other religions at Glenbard West High School, but all of them were my friends. So these are, these are the people that I hung out with. And it was interesting. After a while, I, I, it dawned on me. I was like, you know what? I'm pretty outspoken about my faith. And they know that I disagree with them, that I don't think they're right. And so why do they want to hang out with someone who says... I think I'm right and you're wrong. That, especially about something that's so important to you as your religion. So I actually asked one of them. I asked a Muslim friend. And he, he was, it was a very interesting answer. He said, I actually get along better with devout people of other religions than with people who say all religions are basically the same. He says, if I encounter someone who has strong Uh, religious convictions, I I know that they're going to respect me for my strong religious convictions. They actually know what it's like to have beliefs that are sincerely held and distinct. And so you treat me with respect for having things even when we disagree. And when he said that, I realized that's one of the things I appreciated about him, that he treated me with respect even though we disagreed about things. According to him, he said people who lump all religions together, they actually feel kind of patronizing. It's almost like you're not even going to bother to learn about my religion enough to realize what's distinct and important and special about it to me, and you're just going to you know kind of say, oh, let's not even talk about it. We're we're all okay. Think about how it comes across. If you said to a, a Muslim friend of yours, you know what, you and and, and my Buddhist friend, you're basically the saying the same thing. I know that you say there is only one God, and uh, my, my Buddhist friend says, you know, there, there is no God. The universe is all that exists. The, the two of you, yeah, you're talking about the same reality. Now, besides being logically contradictory, you can't, there can't be both one God and no God, uh, it's also kind of condescending. It's kind of saying to someone of a, a different religion, saying, you know what? I know you think you know what you're talking about, but let me inform you about what's really going on. I actually understand what's going on better than you do, even though you're the one who believes that. Th- think about it from the maze analogy. If you were stuck in a maze and someone came along and said, all the paths lead out to the exit, how, what would they need in order to know that for sure? What would, they, what would they need to experience? Either they would need to have walked all the paths and realized they they'd go to the exit, or they would need to be the creator of the maze, the one who knew that they designed it with all the paths leading to the exit, or somehow they would have got, had to have gotten a bird's eye view of the maze where they could see all the paths and realize they all go to the exit. But no matter what the answer is, they have to have some superior understanding to all the people who are trying to figure out the maze on their own. They they would actually have to have greater knowledge, greater understanding than the people that they're talking to. If you say every religion is right, that's implying that you have superior understanding than the, the people who actually believe that religion. And that's not more humble. That's actually more arrogant. Now, sometimes, when people are trying to avoid the logical contradictions of saying all religions are right, they'll, they'll, they'll modify it, and they'll say, okay, look, obviously, not everything every religion says is true. They're, they're not all right, but if you strip away all the things that people disagree about, and you just, you just leave the stuff that people agree on, the consensus, you're gonna have a core of really good stuff, especially morality and ethics. You know, Things like uh, don't murder, tell the truth, take care of people in need, like those are the things that all religions agree on. And if you, if you go there, you get, you get what's real. Now, it is a little bit debatable whether or not all religions ha- share a common morality and ethics. But I'll, I'll grant it for a moment and say we could find a, a big chunk of things that all religions agree on. What would happen if you tried to build a religion just on that? Uh, Pastor Corey, our campus pastor at uh, the Streamwood campus, he he shared a great analogy with me about this. He said, this is what that would be like. It would be like having a party for your friends. And you know all your friends have different tastes in food. And you want to make them all a cake, but you want to make a cake that they'll all be able to enjoy. But there are some of your friends who are so adamant about their opinions about cake that they will only eat cakes made by their recipe. And so you're looking at your friends and you're saying... I can't make one cake for all of these people. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at all the recipes of the cakes that they say they will eat. And I'm only going to use the ingredients that are shared across all of the recipes. And so you do that and you realize there are two ingredients that they all share. Eggs and flour. So you go into the kitchen, you get a bunch of eggs, you pour in a heap of flour, you mix it up, put it in the oven and bake it. You serve it to your guests with spoons, of course. And you say, what do you think? What are they going to say? They're going to say, this is not a cake. It's not a cake. You actually took out all the things that made my cake interesting and good, and you, you extracted them, and you just left it with this. There's nothing valuable in that. That you can no, no more have a, a lowest common denominator religion than you can have a lowest common denominator cake. It just doesn't work. And when we try to do something like this, it actually makes talking about religion more awkward. I mean, if all religions are the same, what what good is having a conversation about what you believe? Just let them believe what they believe, you believe what you believe, and let's just not talk about it. It's awkward when we bring it up. Or if you just focus on what religions have in common, you actually leave out all the bits that, that make the religions interesting and significant, and you don't talk about those things. Lumping all religions together doesn't open up dialogue. It just makes it more awkward to be devout in public. But what about the other solution what if if everything is wrong everybody is wrong now there are a number of reasons why i am not an atheist and i will not get into all of those now but just with this problem in particular it doesn't actually help you solve the problem of being exclusive it's not actually any less arrogant than saying there's only one way because it's just as exclusive as any other religion You might not be saying my religion is true and your religions are false. What you're saying is my worldview is true and all your religions, all your worldviews are false. And in some ways it's even more arrogant to reject all religions because you still have to answer the big questions of life even if you don't have a religious faith. You you still have to say, what's the nature of the world? What what actually counts as a good life? What, What is right and wrong? Why am I here? Is there any purpose or meaning? You still have to figure those things out But instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to find a group of people with a long history of thinking about this and and experience talking about this, I'm just going to figure it out myself. It's a a do-it-yourself worldview. It's a do-it-yourself way to life. You are approaching the great mysteries of the ages and saying, I can solve those. And and I don't know about you, but I just don't have the confidence to try to do that. that. That's a pretty bold, almost arrogant thing to say. So I don't think that saying everybody is right or everybody is wrong is actually going to solve the problem. But, but what about the concern that saying Jesus is the only way is unfair? Like, what, what about people who haven't heard or from other places? Now, I'm not going to be able to dive into that fully today, uh, simply because I don't have time. It's a complicated question, and there's a lot to say about it. But, but that's okay, because actually, a couple of years ago, I preached a sermon where I tackled this head-on, and I, I just want to share that with you. It's called The Fairness of God. It's called The Fairness of God. It's available on our website, and we've posted it to our social media accounts. So if this week you want to go and check that out, dive into that question deeper, you can go watch that. So I'm not going to be able to address that completely here, but I do just want to give you one thought that I find really helpful. It's a thought I find helpful, especially when I feel that God is being unfair, not just with things about, you know, is Jesus the only way? But anytime it feels like God is being unfair. I ask the question, what do I actually know about the person of Jesus? What do I know about Jesus? And even if you're, you're new to this, you're just exploring, even if all you knew was what we've talked about in this series about Jesus, what do you know about him? You say, okay, I know that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who would lay down his life for his sheep. I know that he is the bread of life who came to, to satisfy people's spiritual hunger. I know that he's the light of the world. He wants to bring light into the darkness. And when you see these things that you know about Jesus, ask the question, okay, Is he the sort of person I could trust with a problem like this? Is he the sort of person who is going to care more or less than I do about people who haven't heard? Is he the sort of person who's going to do what is right and fair and just and good with people? And even if I don't know the answer to this question, can I trust him to do the right thing about this? Now, I realize that does not answer the question about what about people who haven't heard. But it does tell you something about the guy who's got, who has to answer that question, Jesus. Can you trust him? I think the answer is yes. Now, here's what I want to try and do for the, the second part of this sermon. The, the second point on your outline is this. I want to show you that it is actually good news. It is actually good news that Jesus is the only way. Now, I, I know this is a tough case, uh, but I think it gets easier when you realize what the alternative to Jesus is. Let's go back to the book of John. I want to look at the conversation that leads up to Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We're actually going to start uh, at the end of chapter 13, so you can flip back there. Uh, What's going on here is a meal. It's actually the last meal Jesus has before he is crucified. It's the night before he's he's about to die, and he's meeting with his disciples one last time to, to teach them and encourage them and have a last moment with them. And the meal begins like this. Jesus very humbly serves his disciples by washing their feet. He shows them just how deeply he loves them. And then after doing that, he says to them, I'm about to leave, I'm gonna go away. Now you can imagine these guys who have spent three years day and night with Jesus, they love him so deeply, they put their hope in him. That's a devastating piece of news. I'm about to leave you. And so they're troubled, they're concerned with this. And Peter, Jesus's right-hand man, his best friend, he asked him about this. He's like, explain this more to me. And we're going to pick up the conversation in verse 36. Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. This is very, very key for understanding Jesus' statements in chapter 14. Peter is saying this, I have what it takes. I can be there for you, Jesus. I can be faithful. I can be strong. Just tell me what to do and I will do it. That Peter's the guy in the corn maze who's like, I didn't even realize there was an easy path. I just went to the hard path. I was like, if that's the path you want me to walk, I can figure it out. I can do it. I can solve the maze. I can get out. At some level, this is what every religion every philosophy is telling us to do. They're describing a way for you to follow. And they're saying, here are all the right things to do. If you can do all of these things, if you can be good enough, if you can do this, you will find your way out of the maze, you will find your way home. If you obey these rules, if you follow these rituals, if you achieve this state of mind, you will find your way home. Now, each religion might describe what counts as home differently, might be paradise or union with the universe or a long life and a comfortable retirement. But every way tells you what to do in order to arrive. And then the only question becomes this. Can you pull it off? Can you do it? Do you have what it takes to work your way through the maze and find life? And and Peter's saying, I do have what it takes. I can do it. You just tell me I will do it. That's it. Now, I, I should point this out that it's not just formal religions that offer us a way. Uh, I I love to listen to podcasts and and read books about productivity, uh, about self-management and leadership and things like that. And and they're full of tons of great tips and good ideas, but underlying a lot of them, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you're into that sort of thing, there's this uh, implied promise that if you do all these things, you you, you know, you manage your time well, you, you organize your space the right way, you learn how to communicate in this or that way, and you do all of these things, then you will have a successful life. You will arrive. This is the key to unlock, you know, getting what you need. Some of you, uh, your your life is all about maximizing your relationships. It's all about making sure that you have these perfect, harmonious relationships. If you could just be the perfect daughter, if you could just be the perfect boyfriend, the the perfect parent, then then all of your relationships in life would be satisfying. You would arrive at the end of the maze. You would be all right. Some of you, the, the path is... Fitness and health. You've got the list of things to do. If I follow this diet, if I follow this workout routine, if I have these supplements and so on, then I'm gonna arrive at wholeness. I will get to the end of the maze. Some of you, the the, the path you're following is avoiding pain. If I can maximize pleasure, if I can minimize pain, if I can do these entertaining things and these things that distract me, I will never have to experience suffering in life. I will arrive at the end of the maze. All of these different things, though, they tell us, here is what you need to do In order to be saved, in order to have life, to get home. But here's the difference between that and what Jesus is doing. Look look at how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 38. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. That Jesus knows what Peter is really made of. Peter may talk a good game, but when it really counts, Peter is not going to be faithful. He's not going to do the right thing. When when Peter actually comes to the moment when when he denies Jesus, it's one of the most important moments in his life. Because it's the moment when he has to be honest. He has to be real about himself. It is the moment where, where he can no longer deny the truth. That it does not matter how good his intentions are. It does not matter how much effort he puts in. It it, it does not matter how much he tries to justify or spin his behavior. He cannot find his way out of of the maze. He cannot do it right. You ever get to that sort of moment in your life? That honest place where you say, I cannot manage this on my own. Maybe it's with a, a habit or behavior in your life that you know you need to stop and you promise, I'm not gonna do it again. That's the last time. And then a day later, a week later, a year later, you're still doing it. Or it's your, your relationships, you know you've made a mess out of them, but you resolve, you say, I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the kind of person I need to be. I'm gonna love the people around me well, but it doesn't matter. Before long, that selfishness, it just comes creeping back up, and you know you can't do it. You mess up another relationship. Or maybe you're really good. Maybe you follow all the rules, you check all the boxes, you you do all the rituals, whatever it is, and you you actually look successful on the outside, but it dawns on you on the inside. My inner life is just as screwed up as it ever was. Maybe it's even worse. You realize that on your own, you, you cannot find your way out of the maze. In fact, the more you try, the more lost you get. You realize that you cannot save yourself. That's a hard place to be, but it's also a really good place to be because it's the place where you actually hear the most hopeful thing ever. It's the place where you hear what Jesus says to Peter next in chapter 14, verse one. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, I would, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Do you realize how amazing that is? Remember when the Bible was first written, all these numbers that mark off the chapters and the verses, they weren't there. This is just added later to help us find our way. So in the conversation that Jesus is having, when he says, Peter, you're about to hit rock bottom, in the very next breath, he says, but do not let your hearts be troubled. He reassures him right there. And he tells him, I'm about to do something so that I can bring you to be with me. I'm going to gather you in. In the very moment when we realize we cannot save ourselves, that is the moment when we realize we don't have to save ourselves. Because Jesus has come to do it for us. This is what I want you to hear. Very important. This is why it is good news that Jesus is the only way. Because all other ways depend on your effort. They all depend on your effort, which means you will never find your way home. Let me say that again. It's good news that Jesus is the only way. Because all the other ways, they depend on your effort, your work, you getting it right. And if it depends on that, you will never find your way home. This is the difference between every other religion and Jesus. All, all other religions say this here is the, the map, the path to get out of the maze. But Jesus says this, I'm coming into the maze to find you. All other religions say, Here's how to find God. Jesus says, I have come to find you. Here's how, how to be good enough. And Jesus says, No, I'm good enough. It, it, it says, Here's good advice about what you need to do. And Jesus says, Let me tell you what I have already done. It's a total reverse situation. Do you know what Jesus has already done for you? This story, like I said before, it's just a few hours before Jesus goes to die on the cross. You ever ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? It's because that was the only way for Jesus to make a way for us to come back to God. It's what he had to do to make that happen. The one thing I haven't mentioned about the maze so far is how we got stuck in the maze to begin with. Like, why are we wandering around lost like this? The, the answer the Bible gives is it's because of sin. Sin is when we go our way instead of God's way. We say, God, I'm going to do it my own way, and you, it doesn't matter what you say. I'm going to do this. And, and when we do that, we, we create a distance between us and God. We separate ourselves from God, which at first glance doesn't seem like that big of a deal until you realize that God is the giver of life. And if you separate yourself from the giver of life, what do you get? death it's the reason why we die spiritually where that restlessness and hunger in our hearts comes from it's the reason why we die physically that at the end of this life it's over it's the reason why if nothing is done about it we will die eternally and be separated from god forever it's a serious problem and it's one we deserve the bible says the wages of sin is death it means the payment we get if we do the work of sin the payment we get on the check death So we deserve it. But God loves us way too much to leave us there. So he decided, you know what? You made this mess of a problem, but I'm going to solve it for you. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to show up myself, and I'm going to do for you what you could not do. And and so when Jesus goes to the cross, this is what he's doing. He's saying, I'm taking all of the consequences, all the things that you deserve, and I'm taking them on me. I'm putting them on my back, and I'm going to carry them. When, When he goes to die on the cross, he's saying, this death is the death that you deserved. And I'm dying it for you so that you don't have to. He's saying the debt that you could not pay, I am paying for it it right now. In just a couple of chapters in the book of John, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, says his very last words are this, it is finished. There's nothing more. The payment is, is paid. He's saying what you could not do, it's done now. It's done now. You don't have to do it anymore. That's really, really good news. And it's the reason why when Jesus comes back from the dead, he can say to anybody and everybody, you can come home to God. You you can come home. There is a way that is open for you. I've opened it up. You don't have to find the way yourself. In in this passage, in verse two, it says, my father's house has many rooms, many rooms. I I don't want you to get too hung up on that image there. Jesus isn't trying to say, heaven is literally a mansion with rooms. He's trying to give you an emotional image. He's trying to say, "This this is how God feels towards you. He is a father who has created a home where his children can come through. There is space for you in this place. It is not that you, God has said, you know what? I'm just going to make space for the kids that I really love. You know what I mean? The ace the students and the star athletes, the, the moral champions and the spiritual rock stars. They've got a space. He say, no, there are many rooms. It's for the failures and the broken, the unworthy and the ashamed. I got a room for you. If you feel like you're, you're someone who's like, I don't know. I don't know if I showed up, if I showed up at God's doorstep, there is no way he would let me in. He's saying, no, 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 no. We got a room prepared for you. That's what he's saying. You can come home. When we say Jesus is the only way, it is not an elitist, arrogant claim. It is the exact opposite. It's saying, look, we we aren't the way. We couldn't find the way. We couldn't make a way. But guess what? We would be lost, except that the way found us. It's amazing. It's good news. It's a humble, humble claim. So here's the question If Jesus has come to find you, do you actually want to be found? Do you actually want to be found and come home to God? In this passage, verse 1 says this You believe in God, believe also in me. This is how we embrace the way that Jesus is made. We believe in Jesus. And that doesn't just mean believing with your mind, you know, the fact that, like, Jesus existed or something simple like that. In the Bible, the word belief, it means something more like trust, dependence. It's when you say, I'm going to trust you with my life and my eternity, Jesus. It's out of my hands, it's in your hands. I, I trust you with it all. In fact, you're saying, I, I don't trust myself with this. When I've tried to live life my own way, figure it out my own way, solve my own problems, I couldn't do it. I actually made more of a mess out of it. I, I'm giving up that control and I'm giving it to you, Jesus. You save me. You rescue me. You're in charge now. I need you to save me. That's what believing in Jesus is. Have you ever gotten to that point? Have you ever done that and said, I'm, I've come to the end of myself, Jesus, I need you to save me? Would you like to do that? Here's what I want to do. If you're at that point of saying, I need Jesus to rescue me, I I want to help you do that. I'm I'm going to pray in just a moment here. And it's a, a simple prayer. We're going to walk through. There's nothing magical about this, but it's a way we find helpful to express that belief in Jesus. It's got three parts. It goes like this. I'm sorry, thank you, and please. I'm sorry, thank you, and please. We're going to say, I'm sorry for the way I've gone my way instead of your way, God. We're going to say, thank you Jesus that you did for me what I could not do and we're going to say please forgive me free me welcome me into your family so if that's you let's do that right now let's pray let's begin by saying sorry maybe you want to say something like this God I'm sorry because I know I've gone my way instead of your way and that has led me nowhere good I'm sorry because I know that I have done things again and again that are wrong and I've cut myself off from you. Maybe you wanna fill in some specific things you've done that you wanna say sorry to God about. Take a a moment to do that now. And then say, thank you. Say, thank you, God. You have done for me what I couldn't do. Jesus, when you went to the cross, you took my penalty. You paid the price I could not pay. Thank you. Jesus, when you rose from the dead, you brought life for me. Thank you. Jesus, you are so good that you have loved me in that way. Thank you for doing it. Express that in your own way to God. And then say, please, God, please, I I need you to forgive me. I I need you to wipe away my guilt and my shame. Please, God, I need you to free me, to transform me, to make me a new person. God, please, I need you to welcome me into your family. God, please, I need you to give me a hope and a future with you. God, please, you're the one I depend on. Say those things to God in your own way. God, I thank you for each person who has just prayed a prayer to you that, that expresses that belief in you. That, that right now, because they have done that, they have entered into a relationship with you. God, it is so amazing. You say that heaven rejoices when we do that. And so God, I, I thank you for each one of them and I pray that you would bless them as they, they, they begin a relationship with you, finding this new hope, this, uh, this uh, confidence and assurance that you are the way. I pray that you would help them to walk with you for the rest of their life. And that joy and that confidence of knowing they belong to you, part of your family, and have a hope of a future with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.